<clears throat> now this is recording. RTI International Center for Forensic Science presents Just Science. Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for forensic science professionals and anyone who is interested in learning more about how real crime laboratories work. In Episode 8 of Just Science, funded by the National Institute of Justice's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence, we interviewed Dr. Christopher Krebs, a senior research social scientist at RTI International. Dr. Krebs' research has shed light on the problem of sexual assault on college campuses and prisons. We discuss the history of RTI research in the area and how to interpret the data considering the methodology of social science. This could be an educational episode in data interpretation and statistics that might be useful for forensic scientists, but also raises the awareness of an issue of which the magnitude is not yet fully understood. Some content in this podcast is sensitive and may evoke emotional responses or may not be appropriate for younger audiences. If you are a victim of sexual assault or would like to talk to a trained advocate, There is a National Sexual Assault Telephone Hotline you can call at 1-800-656-4673 or visit RAIN.org or VictimsOfCrime.org. Here's your host, Dr. John Morgan. Hello and welcome to Just Science, the podcast for forensic science professionals. We're going to be looking today at an issue that's a little bit different from some of the other things that we've done. In general, we try to focus in on issues surrounding forensic science itself, but today we're going to be looking at issues that impact on what comes in and out of the crime laboratory. And with me is Chris Krebs. Dr. Krebs actually works here at RTI with the rest of the team of the Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. He uh, has his doctorate from Florida State University. He's published extensively in victimization and understanding patterns and rates of victimization. He's worked in data collection regarding the uh, Prison Rape Elimination Act. And he most famously has been involved in longstanding research, trying to understand the incidence of campus sexual assault. So how long have you been involved at RTI? I've been at RTI for almost 17 years, came here in 2000, and have been a researcher ever since. Was that straight out of Florida State? Straight from graduate school. Came straight to RTI, not really knowing what to expect because we didn't do a lot of criminological research when I first started here. Our focus in that area has only grown. Yeah, it's an amazing place. Uh, When you started at RTI, there wasn't a whole lot of criminology going on. Did you start in that area? Yeah, Pam Lattimore hired me, and certainly when I started, I immediately got put on existing projects. We were doing some drug court evaluation work for the National Institute on Drug Abuse. We were doing evaluations of programs for the National Institute of Justice, specifically some programs uh, related to substance use and delinquency prevention. I also did some work for the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, so we were doing both primary data collection and some basic research trying to understand substance use and substance abuse treatment impacts for justice-involved people for SAMHSA, as well as do some evaluations of some treatment programming for SAMHSA. Well, why'd you get out of that? That's great work, I mean, and, and very relevant these days, I mean, with the opioid epidemic and other things like that. I'm one of these people who is, for better or worse, interested in lots of different things. And I think once you come to a place like RTI and start seeing 
all of the opportunities that might exist, you sort of naturally end up moving in different directions, some of which is self-initiated or by choice, and some of it has to do with what the federal government is interested in funding. And after being here about four or five years is when we started seeing the opportunities related to the Prison Rape Elimination Act. And we pursued and received funding to do the National Inmate Survey for the Bureau of Justice Statistics in 2004. And since that time, we've been doing that National Inmate Survey work with BJS, and it's turned into a very large multi-year effort where we have surveyed literally hundreds of thousands of prison and jail inmates across hundreds and hundreds of prisons and jails about their experiences with being sexually victimized while incarcerated. Around that same time is when we also started moving into the area of studying sexual assault among college populations. I was at Justice at the time, and I remember the original authorization for the Prison Rape Elimination Act, and it was quite a big deal at the time, and in many ways there was a lot more fiction and myth than there was fact. I mean, the research that you all have done and others uh, really allowed the system to understand exactly not only what the incidents was, but what the whys were. Absolutely. It's an area of research that I think has been talked about for decades, and you can almost not watch a movie about a prison or a show about a prison where references to being sexually assaulted or raped aren't made. When the legislation was passed and then the solicitation came out, I think we were all a bit surprised, and it was a very interesting time because it was a really interesting group of, I would say, liberal and conservative supporters of the legislation who came together to craft that legislation and pass it. And in the legislation, it's interesting because on one hand, they talk about sexual assault in prison being a big problem. And then on the other hand, they talk about not really having enough evidence to understand it. So that's why the National Inmate Survey came to be. And certainly, we've been able to collect a, a lot of information that I think has shined a lot of light on the issue. And it pointed out that this is a problem in some places, but across the board, not nearly at the rates that some people feared it was. I and mean, we think that's an important finding, and it's work that we continue to do with BJS. It's called the Prison Rape and Elimination Act, but you're looking at sexual assault. So tell me the difference between the two from the PREA side of it, the Prison Rape Elimination Act side of it, and how you distinguish that and, and try to tease that out. Typically, when we ask survey respondents about what they have experienced, we don't use terms like rape and sexual assault or sexual battery because those are legal terms. And we know from talking to a variety of populations, whether it be college students or inmates or people in the general population, that there's not very good or universal understanding of what those legal terms mean or what events meet those legal definitions. So when we use a term like sexual assault, we're typically using it as somewhat of an umbrella term and included in sexual assault is rape, so that's unwanted sexual contact that involved penetration, and sexual battery, so forced touching of sexual body parts, forced kissing, things like that. And in our definitions, we typically think of sexual assault as being either of those things. So we use sexual assault as kind of an umbrella term, and in our latest research related to sexual assault among college populations, rape and sexual battery are mutually exclusive categories that sum up to a, an estimate of sexual assault, which we'll talk about, and the difference between rape and sexual battery being that penetration occurred when rape is defined as having occurred as opposed to sexual battery that did not involve sexual penetration. So is the survey the same now in the prison rape case as it was when you first did it? So we first went out into the field with the National Inmate Survey in 2007, and we have since done a round of data collection in 2008-2009 and in 2011-2012. 
And the survey instrument, the core elements of the survey instrument for measuring sexual victimization are essentially the same. We use audio computer assisted self-interviewing, which allows the inmate to interact privately with a laptop computer that has a touch screen to answer all of the sensitive questions. And that allows them to answer in complete privacy and with confidence that the, the answers they provide are not going to be attributed to them as individuals or shared with anyone at the facility. And that methodology and the core pieces of the survey instrument have not changed since, since the beginning. Is that, and it's always inmates, you never do like parolees or people of that nature? Or? So the Prison Rape Elimination Act funded a number of different efforts. We've been involved in the National Inmate Survey, which is a survey of adult prison and jail inmates, although we do survey juveniles who are in adult facilities when we come upon them. Um, and that's the largest PREA data collection. But there's another study that's done by Westat that involves going into juvenile residential and detention facilities and interviews juvenile inmates about their sexual victimization experiences. There is an administrative records collection where the Census Bureau goes to prisons and jails and asks them to tell them about incidents of sexual victimization that become known to authorities there. And there was one round done by NORC and it was a survey of former inmates. So they surveyed people who were on probation or parole after having left a prison facility about their sexual victim experiences while they were incarcerated. Is it always a prison? Did you look at many jails as well? We did. In fact, since there's many more jails in the country than prisons, we end up collecting data in more jails than we do prisons. How would you sum up what the PREA surveys have shown, at least within RTI's work? So the National Inmate Survey, like I said, has involved interviewing hundreds of thousands of prison and jail inmates across hundreds of prisons and jails. And I think the primary takeaways from that work is that, on average, the prevalence rate of sexual victimization within prisons and jails is very low. In the past 12 months, we estimate across all our collections that less than 5% of inmates experience sexual victimization of any kind while incarcerated. And that estimate is much lower than people expected it to be or that some people expected it to be. Some of that sexual victimization is perpetrated by other inmates. Some of it is perpetrated by staff on inmates. Some of it involves penetration and constitutes rape. But a lot of it does not and involves instead forced touching of sexual body parts or what we would call sexual battery. So some of it is quote unquote more serious or less serious than other incidents. The other takeaway, I suppose, is that there are some facilities, and one of the primary purposes of the National Inmate Survey and the PREA legislation is to create facility-specific estimates. The idea is not to go out and produce a national estimate, but to, in fact, create prevalence estimates for individual facilities. And when we do that, we see that, as I said, on average, the prevalence rates are very low. But there are places where you start to see prevalence estimates ticking up into the double-digit percentages. You know, 16% of inmates at a jail or at a particular prison experiencing sexual victimization in the past year. And it's certainly those places where we think that the attention needs to be paid and more needs to be looked at in terms of trying to understand why some facilities do seem to have considerably or significantly higher rates than others. Now, one of the issues that I recall on this area is that it's very hard to tease out consent in these cases. So the most common victim might not even consider themselves a victim because it's basically a, 
it's kind of a, a quid pro quo kind of thing. I'm getting protection or some kind of good or whatever else it might be in exchange for sexual services inside the prison. So does the survey try to get at that? Is there a way for you all to try to figure out whether that's happening? Because that is a major effect. It is. I mean, defining consent or getting survey respondents to understand your definition of consent and apply it to or operationalize it in the context of your survey questions is one of the most challenging things we do when we're trying to measure something like sexual victimization. Certainly, we try to be very clear with survey respondents and make sure that we have confidence that they understand what it is we're asking. Just like we don't use terms like rape or sexual assault when asking them about things they may have experienced, we don't refer to them as a victim or ask them if they think they've been victimized. It's very much about using behaviorally specific language. So in this case, talking with explicit language about the types of sexual contact you're trying to measure. So you talk about what oral sex is and the body parts using explicit language. And you talk about sexual contact that they did not consent to. And you explain that that is something that they did not participate in willingly. And you use a variety of terms like consent, like willing or unwilling, to try to get across the fact that you're trying to measure something that they did not want to happen. And certainly when we sit down with prison inmates and go through the survey instrument during a process that we call cognitive interviewing, we talk about what the different terms mean and what the language means to them. That's our effort and it's a very rewarding experience to really make sure that what we're doing, what we're trying to measure, means essentially the same thing to everyone we're trying to talk to in our target population, in this case prison and jail inmates. And when we go through cognitive interviewing for the National Inmate Survey, we're able to arrive at terms that seem to be essentially universally understood. So we're able to then go out with a survey instrument that we have a lot of confidence in is effective at defining what is consent and what isn't consent. So when we're trying to measure sexual contact that they did not want to happen, that they did not participate in willingly, that they did not consent to, that they're responding to our survey questions in an accurate way. Were you involved in the campus sexual assault issue from that period, or is that something you got into after the PREA work? So they happened about the exact same time. In fact, it might have been during the same year, same funding cycle, that we wrote a proposal to the Bureau of Justice Statistics to win the National Inmate Survey work. I think it was the same year that we wrote a grant proposal to the National Institute of Justice to study sexual assault among college populations. And it's sort of interesting how that came to be. I was teaching as an adjunct at a local university. And I was teaching to a large criminology seminar of 150 students. And in one semester, I had two undergraduate women come up to me privately and explain to me that they had been given a drug without their knowledge or consent and I believe they both ended up in the emergency room. Neither one of them had been sexually assaulted as far as they knew, but it was clear that they had been drugged, and it was a very scary time for them. And since we were talking about drugs in the criminology seminar I was, I was teaching, they wanted to come and explain to me what happened to them and just let me know that I might want to start covering those topics in class. So I started looking at the research related to, at the time, the, the phrase date rape drugs was fairly popular, but I started looking at the research that had been done on drugging, is what it's commonly called now, or people being given a drug without their knowledge or consent that incapacitates them. And very often it's associated with subsequently being sexually assaulted. But what I saw in the research literature was simply no good estimates of how prevalent being drugged was 
or being drugged and then subsequently sexually assaulted. This is an audience, by the way, that will appreciate that a lot. RTI actually produces the proficiency testing samples for drug-facilitated sexual assault as well. So we're very familiar with the fact that it's a very difficult toxicological problem trying to prove these kinds of cases. And that's what I saw in the research literature is that you would see an article here and there about sexual assault victims coming forward, asking to be tested for substances, some indication that maybe they had been given a, a date rape drug or rohypnol or ketamine or whatever it might have been. But I didn't see any probability-based samples of people that allowed estimation of the prevalence of being drugged and then experiencing drug-facilitated sexual assault. So we wrote a grant to the National Institute of Justice to do work on sexual assault among college populations, but specifically trying to do a good job of measuring the prevalence of drug-facilitated sexual assault. So that resulted in a project that we called the Campus Sexual Assault Study, where we worked with two large public universities. We ultimately ended up surveying over 7,000 undergraduate students at those two schools, about 5,500 undergraduate women. And from that work, we published a bunch of different journal articles, you know, submitted our final report to the National Institute of Justice, did all the things that we were supposed to do for that research. And certainly the drug-facilitated sexual assault angle was part of that, and then we showed that it does happen, but it's relatively rare. But what wasn't rare was being sexually assaulted in general. And one of the statistics that came out of that work was that one in five undergraduate women will be sexually assaulted while they're in college. And that was not meant to be a national estimate. That was from data collected from seniors, undergraduate women at these two schools. But people use that estimate as if it's a nationally representative statistic, and it's lived on to this day. And juxtaposing with Priya, it makes it very sensational. It certainly got a lot of attention because the idea that one in five women will be sexually assaulted while they're in college is sort of an attention grabber, and that's certainly not how we intended it to be used or what we were going for by doing that analysis, but that's certainly the attention it grabbed. And we replicated our study uh, a few years later with funding from NIJ um, at four historically black colleges and universities, and again, published a lot of that research and found some slightly different things with those populations that were of interest. But then a lot of that research essentially sat on a shelf. And it wasn't until 2014 when there seemed to be a real renewed interest in the topic of sexual assault among college populations that we were able to start doing this work again. And that started because the White House formed the White House Task Force to protect students from sexual assault. And that called for a number of things, including additional survey work and research related to the prevalence and nature of sexual assault among college populations. And that's how we came to do this most recent study that I think we're going to be talking about. Yeah, so the one in five figure is different from the figures with Priya. Let's talk about that a little bit. So is the definition of sexual assault as you're presenting it in the survey and as the students are responding to it a different kind of presentation in that regard? Was it broader or narrower in that regard? I wouldn't say it's all that different. I mean, we tried to follow the same best practices in survey research when you're trying to measure sexual assault or rape or sexual battery. But it's about using behaviorally specific language, not using terms like rape and sexual assault, but instead describing in graphic terms the types of sexual contact you're interested in trying to measure or want your respondents thinking about when answering the survey questions. And then you define in our case, this phrase, unwanted sexual contact, which we say is sexual contact that you did not consent to in our campus sexual assault work. So you 
you make sure that they have a, a very clear understanding about the types of sexual contact that you're interested in measuring. So you define oral sex for them, you define anal sex for them, you define sexual intercourse for them, penetration with fingers and objects and all sorts of different types of sexual contact that you want them to be thinking about when answering your survey questions. You then explain to them that you're going to be asking them about unwanted sexual contact, which is sexual contact that you did not consent to. And then in the survey questions, so we go through a series of, of survey questions that ask them about different times they may have experienced unwanted sexual contact during different parts of their life. And then we ask questions about what that sexual contact entailed, what types of, if it involved penetration, what type of penetration, things like that. And that allows us to not only estimate what percentage of respondents to the survey experienced different types of sexual victimization, but when in their lives they experienced that victimization. And did you accompany the survey work with the cognitive interviewing that you did in the pre-assai? Yes, we um, have also done cognitive interviewing with college students to make sure that the survey questions that we intended to ask them use terms that they universally understood. You know, a few things have come out of that. A lot of the recent work that's been done on sexual assault with college populations gets referred to as a climate survey. In fact, some people go out with surveys with college students and call them climate surveys. We found that when we sat down with college students and called it a climate survey, they thought it was going to be about the weather or climate change. We learned from that as an example that we do not want to field a survey that has climate in the title. Other things we learn in that process helps us tailor the questions in a way that we think creates a more universal understanding of what it is we're trying to measure. To give you an example, one of the things we realized is that in our early work, the campus sexual assault work, as well as in other studies of sexual victimization, we found that if you only ask about sexual contact that they did not consent to, you run the risk of having them report things that they might say they didn't consent to, but was absolutely consensual sexual contact. So to give you an idea, we were doing cognitive interviewing for another study, the National Intimate Partner Violence and Sexual Violence Survey, which we do for the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. It's a large telephone survey of the general population. And we were sitting down talking to a woman who was married, and she endorsed affirmatively an item that asked about unwanted sexual contact, which we had defined for her as sexual contact that she did not consent to. And in follow-up questions about what happened during that incident, it became clear to us that she had had perfectly consensual sexual contact with her husband, but she wasn't in the mood. And we were using unwanted sexual contact trying to convey it was something she didn't want to happen. But for her, it was absolutely consensual. She just didn't verbally consent to it by saying, yes, I consent to her, or, yes, I want to do this, because she wasn't really in the mood, but she was fine doing it so he would go to sleep, is what she basically described for us. That's the type of thing you learn in cognitive interviewing that allows you to raise the bar, if you will, and try to increase the rigor of your measurement approach. So in the latest sexual assault study with college populations, we go a step further in how we define unwanted sexual contact, and we explain that Unwanted sexual contact is sexual contact that you did not consent to and that you did not want to happen. And we think by raising the bar there, we think we're improving our measurement, but we also think we're trying to mitigate criticisms that we're including things that were consensual when the respondent maybe says, well, I didn't verbally consent to it, but I was totally okay with it happening. So we try to raise the bar to the point that we think 
that what we're measuring absolutely constitutes sexual victimization and constitutes sexual contact that not only did they not consent to it, but that they did not want it to happen. So do you have any data right now that indicates how many of the one in five, how that figure might have changed if you looked at it from that perspective? Or do you feel like you really need to re-ask the question in order to be able to understand that properly? Yeah, I don't know that we have any data to understand the amount of measurement error that might have existed by not having the statement and that you did not want to happen. The other reason that comes up, and we may get into this conversation in more detail later, but the other reason it comes up is because if someone is incapacitated, you know, let's say passed out after drinking too much or, or taking a certain drug or something, it's by definition and in reality impossible for them to consent, right? So that's the other reason we felt like it was important to include that statement that you did not want to happen because sometimes college students may not necessarily endorse the idea that they did not consent to it when they were not even conscious, when in reality that's the case. But by adding and that you did not want to happen, we're making it very clear that we're talking about sexual contact that, that occurred. They didn't provide consent outwardly or verbally, whether they were incapacitated or not, and they did not want it to happen. So they can say that it happened against their will, without their consent, all of those things. And those are the things that are necessary for defining that a crime has occurred. And that's ultimately what we're trying to estimate or measure. Sure, but even that is limited, right? I mean, so one of the things now that's been talked about is, you know, yes means yes, no means no, right? But uh, anything other than yes means no as well. And so have you thought about the idea of trying to understand this from the perspective of what was expressed, where you, know, you objected or were not able to consent or something of that nature? I mean, I think you raise a good point. Measuring sexual victimization, you know, I think is one of the more challenging things we try to do in social science research. And there's lots of different ways you can word things. There's lots of different terms you can use. There's certainly different policies that exist from school to school or state to state about what not only the definition of sexual assault, but the definition of consent. And you can certainly come up with alternative wordings for things. But at the end of the day, we found and still believe the cleanest way to do this is to define sexual contact using very explicit, behaviorally specific language so everyone's clear on what that means, and then explaining to someone that you want to measure unwanted sexual contact, which is sexual contact that they did not consent to and did not want to happen. We feel like that is, at this time anyway, the most rigorous way to go about defining what it is we're trying to measure and doing so in a way that virtually all of our respondents understand what that means and can endorse the questions affirmatively or negatively based on their actual experiences. So do you discuss in the, any of the surveys the whole issue of reporting? How often does victimization turn into, I've actually you know, reported a crime? We do. So when someone endorses some of our screener items that initially identify them as having experienced sexual victimization, we then have lots of follow-up questions about the incidents, the perpetrators, where it happened, when it happened, who they told about it. So we, we find out what percentage of them tell family and friends and roommates about what happened to them. We have different organizations or entities to which they may have reported it. So it may have been campus police, local police, a crisis or health center associated with the university, a crisis or health center not associated with the university, 
administrators on campus, faculty, staff, things like that. And we find out what happened afterwards. Did you tell anyone? Who did you tell? If you didn't tell anyone, why didn't you tell anyone? If you did tell a certain group, what was that experience like? Were you satisfied with how they handled the situation? And we try to collect a lot of information uh, on those experiences that victims have post being victimized. The reality, though, is that our research, and as well as the research of others, shows that the rates of reporting to authorities of any kind are extremely low. Certainly reporting to law enforcement, fewer than 10% of victims seem to report their victimization experiences to either campus or, or local police. Do we know why? Well, there's a variety of factors. They tell us a, a number of different reasons. Certainly some of them have either experienced or know about people who have reported to law enforcement or the school and had very negative experiences, treated poorly, not believed, they had their own behavior questioned. There's widespread knowledge among college students that reporting sexual assault is not a, a trivial matter and doesn't always go well, and we see that in our data. There's also, I think, a whole lot of self-blame that goes on. Very often, the victims of sexual assault who are in college know who their perpetrators are. The large majority of victims know who their perpetrators are. Might have even been dating the perpetrator or had a romantic interest in the perpetrator. May have even had consensual sexual contact with the perpetrator before. But then what happens either crosses a line or was unforeseen. May have happened when one or both of them is consuming alcohol. And very often what we see is that victims tend to feel responsible or at least partly responsible for what happened to them. And what that results in is less confidence that, in fact, the perpetrator really did something wrong. And we know that when we talk to college students about sexual victimization, and if we define it as rape or sexual assault, again, those legal terms, and ask them what those things are, they're very likely, and they very often describe, well, that's when someone you don't know, you know jumps out from behind a bush or attacks you in a parking garage and rapes right. you. They will define incidents or describe incidents that involve very often a stranger, very often it's violent, very often everyone is sober, very often it's, oh, you try to fight them off and you can't, you scream no and stop and they keep going. And the reality is that a lot of the sexual assaults that occur among college populations don't fit that description, don't fit those definitions in their minds for what constitutes rape or sexual assault or a crime. Therefore, a lot of college students who we believe experience sexual victimization, are sexually assaulted, in some cases are raped, don't necessarily understand that what happened was in fact a crime. When they said no, stop, and the person didn't stop, sometimes these victims don't understand that that was a violation, that that was a crime. And when that's the case, and when they've been drinking and maybe they're underage, all those factors compound and just make it that much less likely that the victim especially if they know of other victims who have had negative experiences with reporting victimization, it makes it that much less likely that they're going to share their experience or report it to authorities of any kind. So do you have any, any of this data that links to, I guess there are three different possibilities. One is the administration of the educational institution itself. The second would be the campus police. And then the third would be just some other police 
entity, right? I'm not sure how much you've teased out where it occurred. It might not even have occurred on campus, right? It's just during that period. So how do we know how they perceive those three different entities with respect to legitimacy, confidence, and so on? So we've certainly collected information from college students and victims about how they perceive different groups on campus and whether there's trust. And in our latest study, we have, I think it's 11 different scales that measure different aspects of the environment on campus and kind of the attitudes towards women, the extent to which jokes about sexual harassment or sexual assault are tolerated, the perceptions of students in terms of how effective the leadership is at preventing sexual assault or dealing with accusations of sexual assault. So we have lots of, of data on that and we see a lot of variation in terms of how students perceive different groups on campus, how much confidence they have in different entities. We see a lot of differences between men and women. Men tend to perceive their campus and their environment as being much better at dealing with the issue, sexual assault being much less of a problem. Victims and non-victims among females seem to answer a lot of these questions very differently. But one of the things that we did with our, our latest study that ultimately was very interesting is whenever you collect survey data, ideally you'd love to be able to compare it to something, some sort of gold standard. So there's some famous survey research done many years ago where they asked a, a sample of survey respondents about health insurance coverage. And they also had data from health insurance companies on whether or not these people had coverage. And they were able to compare sort of apples to apples whether someone said they had health insurance coverage and what the nature of that coverage was to actual coverage and find out how accurate the survey data were. And certainly when we do a study like this, there's lots of people who doubt the validity of our data. And they think, well, how do you know they're telling the truth? How do you know they understood the questions? Things like that. Certainly we get criticized a lot for how we know that our, our survey data are valid or accurate or necessarily represent the actual prevalence of rape or sexual assault or whatever measure it is we're putting out there. For our latest study, the Campus Climate Survey Validation Study, we did something that we were somewhat reluctant to do. Because rape and sexual assault is, is pretty much universally understood to be the crime that is least likely to be reported to authorities, we were reluctant to do this. But what we decided to do was compare our survey data to data that were reported by the schools that participated in the CCSVS to the federal government under the Cleary Act. So the Cleary Act is a federal piece of legislation that requires colleges and universities, if they receive any sort of federal funding or federal financial aid, to report up to the education department incidents of certain crime types that become known to authorities on campus and that occurred on or immediately adjacent to campus. So schools every year have to send data to the federal government that tells how many incidents of certain types of crime occurred on or immediately adjacent to campus and were reported to authorities on campus. So we decided to try to compare our survey data at the nine colleges and universities where we collected those data to Cleary Act data. Now there's some certain imperfections in this comparison, just so you know. The Cleary Act data are collected on a calendar year basis, so we had to take the most recent year available, 2014, and we defined rape as the measure that we wanted to focus on because it's the most serious type of sexual victimization we measured and the Cleary Act measures, and we thought that's the type of victimization that's most likely to be reported to authorities. So when we looked at the nine schools that participated in the CCSVS, during the calendar year 2014, 
they reported a total of 40 rapes. So, and these are relatively large schools, I'm assuming. Well, there's variation. We had a lot of variation across the nine schools in terms of size, in terms of geography. We had them coast to coast, public versus private. We also even had uh, representation from two-year schools. Did all of them report at least something? Did they all uh, conform to their requirements? I mean, I think they all submitted Clery Act data, but some of those data points were zeros. Okay. So across the nine schools, they reported a total of 40 rapes occurring. We then decided to look within our survey data and try to come up with an estimate that we think could credibly be compared to that number 40. So when we look within our survey data, we had made estimates not for a calendar year, but for the academic year. So we collected our data in the spring of 2015, and therefore the data represent roughly a seven to eight month reference period. So since August of 2014 until they took the survey in late spring 2015, had they experienced rape. And when we looked across the weighted populations for all nine universities, we identified 2,380 rapes. Wow. 2,380. Not, not sexual assaults, rapes. Now, this was, was, now, are you talking about within the survey population or across the nine institutions extrapolating out from the survey population? Uh, the, the, the latter. So we collected completed surveys from 23,000 students, and we weighted those data up to represent the populations at these nine schools. And when we weight the data up to represent the entire population, because our sample is a representative sample of students at these nine schools, that's where we get 2,380 rapes. Now, only 770 of those occurred on campus. Okay, about a third. About a third. 770 of the 2,380 rapes occurred on campus. Only 160 of the 2,380 rapes were reported to authorities associated with the school. And when you look for common cases between rapes that occurred on campus and were reported to school authorities, we get 60. And since that's a survey estimate, it's got a, a margin of error, a confidence interval around it that goes from 30 to 90. So what we're able to conclude is that when we look at our survey data and try to compare it to as apples to apples a manner as possible, we do not find any more or less rapes having occurred at these nine schools than were reported to authorities under the Cleary Act. So there's three takeaways from this comparison in our minds. One, if you like Cleary Act data and you think they're credible, then our survey data look pretty good. We're able to not distinguish significant differences between what we estimate should have been reported under Cleary and what was actually reported under Cleary. Right, so the limitations of Cleary data are not necessarily with respect to anything outside of the assumptions of it. In other words, it's obviously not going to be, going to be including anything that wasn't reported into a campus authority. That's right, but even having said that, lots of people doubt Cleary Act data. They think that schools are actively trying to suppress cases. They think that there's simply no accuracy with regard to those data. But if you feel good about Cleary Act data, our survey data look pretty good. If you doubt Cleary Act data and you think that schools are not reporting rapes that occurred on campus and that were reported to authorities, our survey data actually make the Cleary Act data look pretty accurate. But of course, the key takeaway is that if you're using any law enforcement or official statistic to estimate 
the prevalence or the magnitude of this problem, you'll be dramatically underestimating it unless you have survey data like those we collected. Because only then are you going to be able to identify all of those victims who were raped, in this case, maybe off campus, or never reported it to authorities who were required to report it up under the Clery Act. Well, I mean, that raises a lot of really interesting questions. I want to focus in on, though, one particular aspect of it because of, of who we are, what we're doing here. And it's about this legitimacy issue. So you're talking about a universe of over 2,000 incidents of rapes of which only 40 came out in the Clery Act or 60 in your data, which is basically roughly the same number from a, a statistical perspective, right? And that actually might have gotten into a crime laboratory. That raises two interesting points to me. One is that means even if it's a consent case that got to that crime laboratory, that there's a dispute about consent, it might seem to that laboratory like they're getting a huge number more cases than by looking at consent cases. But they've already been through an incredible filter out in society before they even get to the point where they're a consent case with a rape kit in a crime laboratory. I think that's a fair statement, don't you think? I think that's very accurate. We hear a lot about the cases we know about, right? But in these populations, the number of victims or the percentage of victims who simply never report it, who never have a, a rape kit collected, the percentage and number of victims who are simply never known to authorities is so great. And that's why I think a lot of emphasis is being put on what can be done to do a better job of handling cases and encouraging reporting, because we think a lot of good can come from reporting, whether it has to do with holding perpetrators accountable or getting victims the services they need, or learning more about the issue that's affecting a college population so you can do a better job at educating students and preventing rape and sexual assault cases. Everyone, I think, for the most part, believes that reporting is a good thing and needs to happen on a more prevalent basis than it does. But the reality is, is the data just suggests it's incredibly rare to have a victim report and that those who report aren't necessarily representative and couldn't possibly be representative of the large majority of victims who simply never report it to authorities. And I think one of the lessons out of all this is that police, uh, you know, those of us who care about the criminal justice side of this, there's a kind of a call for leadership, I think. I think that's right. I mean, I agree with everything you said. It's, it's a really interesting situation that colleges are dealing with. You're absolutely right. And very often these are crimes that have occurred, but the criminal justice system and law enforcement may not be involved at all in investigation or punishment and certainly not involved in running the, the tribunal or the hearings that determine guilt or innocence. And the burden of proof is even different than it is in a criminal court. And there's lots of reasons for that, and there's lots of history there, and it's very controversial. There's lots of reasons why someone who is sexually victimized may be comfortable reporting to the school and going through that disciplinary process. And their main goal might be to make sure that they can continue their education in a way that makes them feel safe and they don't want this person to harm anyone else, but they don't want it going to law enforcement. They don't want it going to criminal court. There are some people who simply want to report what happened to them in an anonymous way or a confidential way because, again, they want the perpetrator held accountable, but they don't want their name or what happened to them known to anyone else or their family or their friends. There's so many different perspectives on how these things ought to be handled. And very often, 
what we hear about are kind of the sensational cases, you know, the Stanford case or the Duke lacrosse case or the, you know, any, any number of cases that, that kind of grab the headlines. And people assume, because those are the cases they're hearing about, that those are somehow representative and that that describes everything that's happening. And I think one of our big takeaways in all this work is that, you know, those are the headlines, those are the sensational cases. Those can stir up lots of emotions and differing opinions and people want to change policy and legislation and talk about what's constitutional and what's not. At the same time, our survey data suggests, and I think in a compelling way to those who are willing to think about and look at this objectively and understand um, methodology and measurement and science, our data suggests that while lots of people are talking about and thinking about and getting really worked up over all these cases that grab headlines and these sensationalized cases, there are lots of sexual misconduct that ranges from sexual harassment to rape of the most severe variety happening among college populations every day. We have to understand that and appreciate that. And one of the things that we think, one of the biggest takeaways from our work, uh, our latest study where we collected data from students at nine universities, is the tremendous variation we see with regard to the prevalence of sexual assault on college campuses. I mean, we had nine colleges and universities participate in our study. And if we look at the prevalence of sexual assault during the academic year, so during that seven to eight month reference period, we have a school on one end of the spectrum where about 4% of the undergraduate women experienced a sexual assault during the academic year. And on the other end of the spectrum, we've got a school where 20% of the undergraduate women experienced sexual assault. Six percent of them experienced rape during the academic year. We've got a school where eight percent of the undergraduate women experienced rape during the academic year, as opposed to that school I first talked about where it was two percent experienced rape during the academic year. The tremendous variation we see across schools is something that we think is really important. And the next question people always ask is, well, why does that variation exist? Of course, yeah. With only nine schools, we aren't there. We can't answer that. We start to see some patterns, but it would be irresponsible for us as scientists to conclude that just because uh, a school with a, a low or a high rate happens to be a private school, that maybe private schools have lower high rates. We just can't draw those conclusions with only nine schools. But certainly what our research shows is that a, a national estimate or a one in five statistic or anything like that really has no value whatsoever. What we need to understand is the magnitude and nature of the problem at each university so that that university can figure out how best to address the problem effectively, prevent sexual assault, provide services to victims, investigate incidents, hold perpetrators accountable. Just like a police department in Detroit, you know, knowing what the national robbery rate is doesn't tell them anything about the prevalence and magnitude of the problem in Detroit or in a particular neighborhood in Detroit. So we feel very strongly that schools need high quality survey data collected from their students using a methodologically rigorous approach if they're going to truly understand the magnitude and nature of the problem and only then can they effectively address it. So you have published a fair amount from your 2015 uh, survey data, is that correct? Well, we have. We, we published a final report that was released in January of 2016. It's 420-something uh, pages long. Uh, it, we tried to be incredibly comprehensive and transparent about everything we did and everything we learned. We've also been to Capitol Hill and met with Senate as well as House of Representative staffs 
to talk about the issue and what we found and what we're finding and what we think needs to be done going forward. Um, we've had a couple presentations and meetings at the White House where we talked about what we did and what we learned. We've been interviewed fairly extensively by different media outlets and we're in the process of writing peer-reviewed journal articles as researchers and scientists typically do and are submitting those for publication. So we've got a lot of different ways of trying to get our information out there and, and share with everyone w what we did and what we found. So we'll make sure to link as much of that material as we can off the Just Science podcast. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. If you are a victim of sexual assault or would like to talk to a trained advocate, there is a National Sexual Assault Hotline you can call at 1-800-656-4673 or visit rain.org or victimsofcrime.org. Next week on Just Science, we discuss the dynamics of blood droplet impacts with Mark Smith from Georgia Tech. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding.